engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 229. And today, Mark Drury of Drury Outdoors is back with us again for the follow-up to his unbelievably popular Predicting Deer Movement episode that he did with us back in 2015. And this time... We're taking things to a whole new level. Before we kick things off, though, we want to thank our friends at Lacrosse Boots for the support of this podcast episode. Cross boots are comfortable, they're waterproof, they are just about as scent-free as you can get, and they're available in all sorts of different levels of insulation to suit any time of year or temperature. As I've talked about here over the past couple weeks, I've got a new pair this year. I've started wearing that new throwback green and yellow Alpha Burley Pro set, and not surprisingly, they are working great. I've been crossing creeks, climbing trees, hiking through the woods, and so far the boots, they fit and they feel well, they are staying dry. They're doing everything I need them to. So if you'd like to learn more about lacrosse boots yourself, you can visit lacrossefootwear.com. And welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And ladies and gentlemen, today we have got a good one for you. Nah, no, I'm actually going to take that back. We don't have a good one. We have a great one for you today. It is it is a special episode. It's one that as soon as I got done recording this one, I just knew this was going to be an all-time favorite. At least I think this is going to be an all-time favorite as we have the mad scientist himself, Mark Drury, back with us again. But I guess before I go into explaining exactly what we've got going on in this episode, I do want to make a super quick plug here. Um, this is actually our last preseason episode of the podcast for 2018 because starting this weekend, my hunting season's kicking off and so is... Dan's season, and my buddy Furter, and our producer Spencer, the whole crew, we are all starting our hunting seasons here this weekend. So lots of exciting stuff is going to be happening over the coming days and weeks. And if you want to stay up to date on all that stuff, there are a couple things I'd highly suggest you do. Number one, make sure you're following Wired Hunt on Instagram. Number two, make sure you subscribe to the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. Number three, hit us up on Facebook. You know, once the season starts, I'm going to be posting nearly daily Instagram stories. I'm going to be documenting exactly what's happening each day. 
on YouTube, we're going to have our weekly video blogs. And then, of course, I'll be sharing lots on Facebook, too, including including Facebook Live Q&A sessions, which I was doing last year during the season. And I'll be starting those up again for the season here next week. So make sure you're tapped into all these things so you can follow along with what's going on, not just on the podcast here, but really can see it and feel it and we share across all these different platforms. So it's going to be a fun year. Make sure you've hit the follow, hit the subscribe buttons. It's just going to take a couple seconds and uh, hopefully it'll be worthwhile and a good time for you. So now with that little plug out of the way, as I mentioned, Mark Drury is back with us. And our goal for this episode was to produce a sequel to the podcast that we did back in 2015. That was episode number 63 titled Predicting Deer Movement with Mark Drury. And in that one, Mark walked us through all sorts of different factors and variables that he looks at when trying to determine when and to what degree deer will move. You know, this is important because it's going to help you understand maybe when you should take your vacation days. This will help you determine maybe when you should go hunting at all. This will help you determine maybe when you should be aggressive and push into your best places or when you should pull back and hunt more conservative stands or hunt some public land instead of pressuring your, your really good stuff. So understanding when deer might move the most or when that one or two days when that mature muck might get up on his feet, that's really, really important because, because just timing your hunts, making sure you're in the right places at the right time, that's probably the, the most important thing that I've picked up over the last 10 years that's helped make me so much more successful. So this past episode we did with Mark, number 63, it was, it was all about this idea. And it was wildly popular, and it got called out by a lot of our listeners as one of their favorites of all time. So I knew I eventually wanted to get Mark back on the show to take things even further. And now seemed like the perfect time to do that because there's this new mobile app that Mark and the team at Drury Outdoors that they're launching is called DeerCast. And this DeerCast app is really tied in directly to this whole idea of predicting deer movement. I've tried it out now myself. It is very cool. It's very useful. Um, I'll let Mark explain it to you guys here himself in a second when he gets on. But, but what I can say is this. If you enjoyed episode number 63... This one is going, it's going to knock your socks off, I think. We just go into so much more detail. We examine all sorts of specific examples and situations. I took a bunch of questions from you, the listeners, about the first episode we did with him and asked them to mark, asked him questions about, you know, the things that you were confused about from last time, the things you want more details about last time. You know, we explored the impacts of cold fronts and barometric pressure and precipitation and cloud cover and wind speed and direction and thermals and the moon and humidity and time of year and annual patterns and all of that in, in just greater detail than ever before. Um, I really think this is, this is a masterclass on predicting deer movement. Uh, I will say this though, if you're new to deer hunting, this one might be too in the weeds for you. Um, at a minimum, I'd say that you should listen to episode number 63 first. And even after that, if this stuff seems confusing to you, you know, don't get worried about it. This is, this is kind of like graduate level material or PhD level material. So, so, you know, go back, listen to 216, which is an intro to deer hunting. Focus on those basics. Don't get too wrapped up in this stuff yet. But if you are a salty old veteran of the woods, and if you're a deer daddy geek like me, I think you are going to love this one. So, rather than beat around the bush any further, I think we should just dive right into this one. So we're going to take a very quick break here, and then we'll get Mark Drury on the line for this Predicting Deer Movement Masterclass. I really hope you enjoy it. 
And that said, we do need to have a quick thank you here to our partners at Onyx for the support of this podcast. Onyx is the maker of the Onyx Hunt app, which is a mobile mapping application that shows you aerial and topo maps, shows you public and private property borders, hiking trails, campgrounds. It allows you to mark waypoints, track where you've walked, measure distances and areas, and a whole lot more. And as I mentioned over the last couple weeks, I've been using Onyx now for a number of years. This year, in particular, it's been especially helpful. Um, I'm actually leaving, as I've mentioned recently here. I'm leaving this weekend for public land hunts in Montana and hopefully North Dakota too. And I'm I'm almost 100% dependent on my Onyx Hunt app to see where this public land is, to find out how to access it, to map my ways in and out to mark my tree stand locations, to plan where I think these deer are going to be coming in and out of, to measure distances from where I can park my truck to get into spots. Um, it's just very, very useful, very helpful. I'll be you know, pulling up on my phone every single day over the next week or two. So if you'd like to try out yourself, you can download it from whatever mobile app store you prefer, but make sure you use promo code WIRED to get 20% off your order. So that promo code is WIRED, W-I-R-E-D. All right, I'm back now with Mark Drury. Thank you for joining me again, Mark. Hey, Mark, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to chat because we got to chat a decent bit over the last couple of years with 100% Wild, but since I've kind of moved off from that this year, we haven't caught up in, I don't know, six, seven months. So I needed my mad scientist fix. So I'm excited about this today. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm particularly excited, too, because last time that you were actually on the Wired to Hunt podcast was way back in 2015, I believe it was. That was episode number 63. We're now on like 229 or 230 or something like that, so that was a long time ago. But that episode, you came on and talked with me and Dan about predicting deer movement, and we answered a lot of questions that a lot of people have all the time about what these different factors are that influence deer movement, how you look at it. Um, I've always thought that you and Terry had a really interesting perspective on that and, and watching your videos and shows. It was, that was always one of my favorite things was hearing why you thought certain things were going to happen. So we had that episode, it turned out amazing and it ended up being one of our most popular episodes of all time. It's been downloaded just short of a hundred thousand times now. A lot of people wow. have been diving into that episode. We've gotten so much feedback on it. I've had people, people were commenting today when I told folks that we were going to talk to you again about this topic that said it's the best audio piece of content that's ever been put out in the hunting industry is what one person said. So <laughs> <laughs> so we've got high, uh, a high bar to get over today to try to top that. But, but I'm hoping we can because my idea was to go to the, the 201 level. If that was like the predicting deer movement 101, this could be predicting deer movement 201 or 301. And where I'm getting with this is that all this is top of mind for me right now because you guys are launching a really cool new project that kind of is, is all about this, this DeerCast app you guys have got going on. Um, so I guess the first thing I'm curious about, Mark, can you give me like the DeerCast 101 at the highest level what this is? Um and then we can kind of dig in from there because I think you're, you're putting together a tool that's going to be really, really helpful that's related to everything else I want to talk about today. So I'm excited to hear more about this. I think so. If our initial conversation was one-on-one, you know, and today we're going to talk a little bit about 201, DeerCast would be, you know, a, a graduate's course uh, or a master's course. Uh, we have worked on this thing tirelessly, literally from about 
back then until present day and maybe even prior to that, Terry and I have studied deer movement for many, many years, uh, especially over the last decade to decade and a half. But specifically, uh, this app that we did is an actually it's an algorithm that we developed with an, an app developer who understood whether just like Terry and I did, because he's a pilot. So, he ha- you know, he understood the ins and outs of weather and he understood what we meant when we talked about weather doing certain things, because he he was a student of it as well. But he was not a deer hunter, which was good because he had a clean mind, but he has a brilliant mind in terms of we were able to create an algorithm that on an hour by hour basis in your location, in other words, the app user's location or a location that he sets, or if he has his location services on wherever he's standing uh, or they are standing, it will on an hour by hour basis interpret 11 different weather conditions. It will interpret time of day. It will interpret um, the uh, 13 different phases. So it's actually interpreting about 24, 25 different things on an hour by hour basis and then spitting out um, a prediction on how the deer should generally be moving in that area or that set location. And we called it deer cast. Uh, So the things that I used to take hours to study and then decide, okay, I think here's the day this week the deer are going to move. This thing does in a matter of seconds, and it does it over and over and over again all all day long, all season long, wherever you're at or whatever locations you put into it. You can put multiple locations into it. So it is, um, in my opinion, and, and I said this the other day, that the app almost knows what the deer are going to do before that deer knows what he's going to do. He'll know it a few days in advance of when the, the app will know in advance of when the deer know, because deer move on instinct. We've patterned that instinct and how they behave in and around certain weather patterns. And we've plugged all that into an algorithm that interprets the weather and then spits out what the deer should be doing. Now, the app can't tell you where to sit. It can't know if coyotes cleared your bed that day. It can't know if three trespassers walked your farm, you know, looking for a a stand or a camera. It can't know those things, other influencers, but it can know the weather and how it should influence deer movement. Um, We also have a set pessimism in this app for really heavily hunted areas. So we took it to that level. We have a a little bit more of an optimism for lighter hunting areas. Um, So it even takes into consideration that. And even even outside of that, you could customize it to your own area by just observing deer movement, looking at what the app is telling you it's going to do, and then having your own set of pessimism or, or optimism and go, you know what, the app is consistently always too optimistic or it's consistently too pessimistic for my area and you can you can adjust on your own. <clears throat> and I would advise people to do that because not every deer hurts created equal. You know, Mark, if I came up to Michigan and hunted your deer, they're going to probably react differently to the weather than they do down at my Texas lease or so on and so forth. So the app is going to generally tell you, pick out tendencies of when deer should be moving, but then you can, you know, adjust it to your own hunting experiences. Uh, the app is free this first inaugural season for everybody to use and understand. And we've got some tremendous help in there in terms of how to use the app, how to hunt with the app, some really cool visual tools that, that should help everybody understand it. Uh, in addition to that, 
the entire Drury Outdoors library is, is found within this app. So there's 115 DVDs uh, that are found within this app. There's over 20,000 minutes of DOD TV content in there. There are stories there that are being uploaded on a, a weekly, daily basis. We have 12 staff writers that are writing, you know, hunting content for us. Uh, it's it's pretty incredible offering. And, and for the first time ever, we have DeerCast Now. And everybody wants to be, you know, immediate gratification, be in the now, be in the know, behind the scenes. Well, every kill as they happen from the Drury Outdoors team, and historically we kill about 100 a year, uh, they'll they'll be on the app the moment we can get them up there. In other words, if Matt Drury goes out and kills a 180, we're going to try and get that sucker uploaded onto the app, the actual kill shot that day with how he killed it and what's going on in his area so that people can not only learn from the app and the weather predictor and the deer movement predictor, but also how our guys are succeeding in the field, the tactics they're using, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a very fun-filled app. It's a smart app, and it, it's a product we are very proud to put the, the DOD and the Drury Outdoors brand on. Yeah, it, it, it it's pretty incredible. Like when I first heard about the idea of an app, I, I had – you know, I, I knew it'd be interesting, but when I've heard about what's really going to be in it, um, I, my mind's a little bit blown. You guys have really outdone yourself. I think I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, can you describe though what like the output looks like? If going back to the deer cast portion of it, the actual predictor portion. So I go in there. I've, I've selected my location. Um, now I'm looking at like my five day forecast or whatever that might be trying to figure out, okay, what's the best days or how are these upcoming, this upcoming weekend look? Can you describe just a little bit of what we're actually going to see? Is it just going to say like Friday, good Saturday, great, or is there more detail? What is that going to look like compared to like a typical weather app or something? Absolutely. It will remind you of a weather app in terms of, um, you know, it states certain things that are important to hunters. <clears throat> and these are ones Terry and I picked out. For instance, I'm looking at, at my DeerCast version right now, and it says, today, my uh, location is set for the farm, and it tells me that today's average high is 84, which is very important. And I don't know, did I speak much on the departure from average temperature in 2015 and how important that is for deer movement? Uh, you know, a little bit when we talked about fronts. I definitely want to dive into that more, though. Okay, so the first thing it states is today's high and low what today's average high is, which is very important. It tells you sunrise and sunset, very important to every deer hunter. It tells you moonrise and moonset. It tells you the precip chance. It tells you the barometric pressure, and it tells you the wind direction and speed. So there, in one quick snapshot, basically tells you everything a deer hunter wants to know on a day-in and day-out basis. And that those are some of the weather conditions, you know, like I'd have to go to three different apps to find all of those out and write them down. I don't mm -hmm. know about you. I've never seen one state it like that. This yeah. one has it all right there in one screenshot for today. If I touch today, it then takes me into the deer cast. All right. Today, the morning is good. Evening is good. There are four categories of movement, which if you think about it, they either move really good, really bad, or somewhere in the middle. So our different uh, categories are you know, poor or bad, poor, good, great. That's the way that we broke them down. Uh, you can click on tomorrow. It'll give you tomorrow's for, uh, deer cast, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, or you can click hourly detail. So 
it'll it'll give five days worth of deer cast and we we could have given 15 if we wanted to however because of the variability of weather forecast we felt like it would be an injustice to the hunter for him to plan a hunt 10 days out when in reality that weather data is about 20 percent accurate 10 days out if you know what i mean if you look at every weather forecaster out there they're most accurate within about 24 to 72 hours so thusly the deer cast is going to be much more accurate in the short term than it will be long term we've extended it to five but we didn't want to go beyond that because we felt like six seven eight nine and ten as we watched it last fall we had a deer cast uh, beta test on a 10-day forecast but hell by the time you got to day six seven and eight it was no longer accurate because the weather forecast had changed 15 times. So we give it to five, but we will absolutely admit the days that are most accurate are the ones where the weather forecast is most accurate. So <laughs> yeah. therefore it's days one, two, and three. Okay. But you can click into the hourly details. And then in the hourly details, the top line is deer movement. And you can scan your hand across that and it'll, or your finger and it'll take you across five different days and show you the trends as they're trending to better movement, stable movement, worse movement, you know, as it's tailing off, and then stable, poor movement, whatever it is. You then go into uh, it also on that same line. All of this is at once. It shows you deer movement. It shows you barometer. It shows you precipitation. It shows you cloud cover. It shows you temperature. It shows you average high. It shows you wind direction and wind speed. So all of that, and that's, that's not all the predictors that you're, you're looking at, but all of that is what the app's interpreting, and that's what you can see on a daily basis. So then you go right below that, and there's about a oh, 10 to 12-minute video that says phase one, because that's the first phase. And, and you'll see every single tactic we use during this phase. So it goes beyond understanding the weather. Now we're getting into hunting tactics. Similar to the um, tactics you see on 13, if you took – all of those tactical breakdowns we've been across the, the first four seasons and glued them all together, that is what you would have there. So it goes through all the tactics, goes through all our breakdowns, so all that information that's on 13 is there. After that, it then goes – oh, I just hit one, sorry. Then it goes into a variety of different interviews that Terry and I did in terms of the influencers for that day. The first one will be time of day so that you understand clearly – in phase one, when we see the most daylight activity. So always watch time of day. That's very important for each phase. Then it goes into cloud cover, barometer, time of day, cloud cover, overview, barometer overview, average temperature, moon overview, average, temp average temperature overview, and so on and so forth. So it goes through all these different weather influencers, and then we tell you why the deer are moving poorly that day or great that day based on whatever weather conditions the app is recognizing. So we sat and we did interviews at nauseum based on every condition that could possibly happen during every phase. And when it comes up, you will see a, a video of Terry and I breaking it down, what that weather condition is doing or should do to your deer that particular time of the year. It's pretty, pretty thorough. Wow. So you're, so you're, only, I, I say it's not only the cheat sheet, it's the whole test and all the answers, man. I mean, you've got the cheat sheet. Okay, deer moving great today. Well, if you'll take the time, and, and some people will want to and some people won't, you're going to be one of those guys that watch them all. I know how you are. You can go down, <laughs> oh, yeah. you can go down and watch all of those, those interviews, and um, it's, it is 401 in terms of weather 
um, in terms of deer movement as it pertains to the weather. Yeah, I, I, the way I'm imagining this, just from what I've heard you say and from hearing a little bit more, it, it seems like it's going to be really not just a not just a cheat sheet, but like an incredible tool to help you just learn more about this stuff too. Because you can you can take all these different influencers that maybe already you're starting to pay attention to just as an individual, and then you can compare and contrast that to what's being told, what's being shown on the deer cast. Compare that against the different factors and and, and things that you're explaining in those videos. It seems like a kind of 360 degree way to to learn about this stuff too not just the end result but I'll actually also learn how to better predict some of these things yourself um, which will only help help you alongside the app I would imagine absolutely we like to say every single thought that's in mine and Terry's head is in this app if you will take the time to watch it you will know exactly what's in our head and and that's all uh, that's, no. a, that's, a, that's a little scary, but uh, <laughs> if it's every single thought, but no, it's, that's awesome. It's in there, man. As it pertains to deer movement and the weather, every thought we have is in this app, and I'm, I'm not joking. So, so here's then the question that some people are going to have. I feel like when we get into this topic of predicting deer movement, there's going to be some naysayers who are like, ah, people that focus so much on this stuff are just looking for excuses not to hunt. They're just looking for, you know, just go hunt when you can is what they're going to say. If you can hunt, just get out there. None of this stuff matters. People get all caught up into it too much. So to that person, could you tell me, what would you tell them? Why, why is this important? Why is it important to be able to predict deer movement? Well, I'm that person. I mean, I hunted every single day of the, the Iowa bow season last year from start to finish every day of the Missouri season. You know, if I went to Missouri, I was in Iowa, vice versa, or I was in Texas. I hunted every day of the season last year. So whether it said good, bad, or otherwise, because I, it's in my soul, I want to go hunting. However, where I hunted varied drastically based on the deer cast that I was looking at and what I thought was going to happen. And I've always been that way. I will not go into those premier great spots on a bad day i will however still go hunt maybe it's an observatory stand maybe it's somewhere where i'm trying to look for another buck maybe it's a stand where i just want to go take a doe uh things like that so it helps you understand the good places to hunt the bad places to hunt and when to hunt them so absolutely i'm that guy go hunt every single day but make a good choice about where you choose to sit yeah so would it be fair to say that you have you know, all these different locations across your, your hunting properties that there are certain times of the year that, you know, certain spots can be hunted or cannot be hunted. There are certain types of days, like good days, bad days, poor days, great days, that certain stands will be ranked according to all these things. So you're, you're every day looking at this and saying, okay, based on my prediction of deer movement, I then, it filters the list of possible places to hunt, right? Absolutely. It absolutely does. You know, and you learn all that through previous years hunting and making mistakes it's really the only way you can learn it so you got to go to make mistakes you know and, and when you make them successful hunting is all about avoiding those mistakes as you know uh the older you get the wiser you get the less mistakes you make and the more the more success you have and that's uh that's part of of any process regardless of what it is whether it's golf or or archery or hunting or baseball and you learn from your mistakes and yeah. the, the good ones, smart ones, don't make many mistakes. Yeah. Deer are the same way. Look at them when they're a year and a half. Go hunt that guy and then go hunting when he's four or five. He's made every mistake in the book. He's still alive. He doesn't make them twice. Yeah. Generally, doesn't make them twice. That's why they're 
the toughest game animal to consistently kill, in my opinion. Yeah, mature so, white tail buck. Go so, kill six year old deer every year. It's it's almost impossible. Very very tough. Yeah. So so speaking of mature white tail bucks, then you as you as you usually do, you had a great season last year. I think if I saw the journal entries right, you killed four white tail bucks last year. Do you have are any of the, one of those or maybe two of those? an example you can share with us about how the predictions influence that hunt, how you change your decision-making or your actions based off that prediction, how that ended up leading to success or anything along those lines? Um, everyone I use deer cast for because we were studying it so, so intensely. And, you know, I also filmed several people killed deer last year, you know, Taylor and my sisters and Bruce Pettit and, you know, we, we had a tremendous season and we also had a season that since I've been doing this, I've never seen better conditions more consistently than we had last fall. I don't know if you noticed that or if they were that good for you up there. Mm, yeah. Like late, you were mid October on was great. Oh, it was tremendous, man. We had below average temperatures. We had incredible bouts of high pressure that wouldn't go away. And the deer moved incredibly last fall. Moon was great. It hit at good times. And uh, it was fun. So I used deer casts on every single hunt that I had. Did it steer me, you know, differently from from the decision I would have made anyway? No, but I was able to make those decision decisions in a much quicker process because keep in mind that the deer cast is my thoughts and mine and Terry's, you know, and it's what we've done for the last 10 years. We've really honed it. Uh, but it, it really wouldn't, I would have still hunted the exact same place as I hunted. Yeah. So it, it probably, you know, so it, it probably didn't change me because this is the way I've been hunting based around the weather and, and those influencers and where I need to be and, and, uh, where I didn't, that's, that's, you know, why we did the interviews back in 15 and we started talking about these weather influencers. Yeah. I, I think I asked my question wrong. What I meant was not, not deer cast, but just simply the information you know. So for let my hypothetical be okay on you killed a buck on the first day of October. So could you tell us what do you remember about the conditions that day that made you think, okay, yeah, this is going to be a day I need to go to X place. Um, or were the conditions some certain way that made you say, Oh, because of this, I know that I can, you know, I have to lay back and hunt an observation stand, or I know I can push in and get to this spot because it's going to be windy and I can be more aggressive. I'm curious to hear how the specific influencers that day led to your success and led to your decisions. That's, I think, what I'm most curious about. Yeah, you're about. correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was October 1st, and uh, I did kill a deer that day. It was my number one target deer on the whole farm. I was extremely fortunate because in all reality, that I went to a number two slot that day, in my opinion. In other words, I had one that I thought was a little bit better, and it, it was not the first south after north. If I'm not mistaken, it was the second, but it had some speed to it. We also had cloud cover, which I kind of like earlier in the season, more so than I like it late in the season. And uh, I thought, you know what, it's going to be pretty good today, but I didn't think it was going to be the optimum day. And, and indeed, the forecast, the deer cast said good. It didn't say great. So I went to a number two slot. And I didn't think that I would see him where I did, but I did um, see him there. He was about three or 400 yards uh, from where I thought I was going to kill that deer. I had two or three places where I thought I could kill him. And this was lower on the totem pole, but I went there because I didn't have the ultimate forecast in terms of deer movement or in terms of the weather. And uh, I just got very fortunate that he walked onto that field that night. I had history of him 
in that field in years past, and I have history of, of big mature bucks in that particular field, but I didn't have as much history there as I did in a few other places. So I think the stars kind of lined up, and I, I had some good fortune there. Uh, but the, the deer cast pushed me to go to a number two slot instead of number one as far as what, in my mind, was the best place to kill him. Interesting. So so then my next thing I'm curious about then is, could you describe what was the scenario there that made that a number two? And then what was the scenario in the top spots where you thought you were going to kill him? Like what was the train or what was, I'm, I'm just curious frequency, to understand. Totally frequency of pictures of him. Totally frequenting that area in years past and already last year. That was, that was what made my determination. He was my number one target. So that's the only buck I was going to hunt. So therefore, I was only hunting him based on previous year's uh, pictures. I had a number, an, another one close to a pond, a staging plot that I got him a lot at uh, the past two or three years. Probably, probably 40 or 50% of the daylight pictures that I had of that deer was over there um, at that spot. So I considered it my number one. And then this number two spot, I had maybe... 20 30 percent daylight activity on that field um and then obviously daylight activity in between but i wasn't going to go into the cover that time of year man it's all about green it's green revisited and both of them were green food sources one of them i planted um in case we got good rains and it came on and it did well the other one was a clover field and that's in case you don't get very good rains those clover fields are incredible insurance policies for years where you're in a drought and barely get any rain they'll they'll get green quicker than a, a you know a an annual plot that you put in. So I, I had options for him and he was my number one target going in. Yeah. So what about a scenario where you get the, the bad conditions? Let's say it's early October now. And I guess let me reframe this during that time frame, Could you outline for me what like an awful day would be? So what would be the influencers or conditions that you see and be like, Ooh, this is, this is going to be a bad day. Deer cast is showing me bad but you still want to hunt. So what do you do in that scenario? Dropping pressure, uh, third, third day of South, second day of South is usually tough after, you know, say you've had a cold front, a bunch of North with high pressure. And then the first day of South always awesome. And one thing about deer, if you're sitting there having a good sit, you're about to have a bad one because they just don't do the same things day in and day out. So if you've been having good movement, you can just about bet you're about to have some poor movement because they just don't do it day in and day out. So stable pressure that's below 30, say it's like 29.85, and it's going to be that for three straight days with south winds and above average temperatures. I mean, ugh, just horrible. <laughs> just horrible. I mean, it's just, you know, when those temperatures start to creep above that average high and really depart from it, it is such a deterrent. It's not even funny. It's almost a linear relationship between departure from average high, whether that be in the positive or negative direction and overall uh, deer movement. It's a major influencer. It's yeah. it's one of the key things that we, we look at one of 11. Yeah. Would you, is it fair to say that would be top of the list? Number one. Mm, it, it, no, it's one of them. It's one of them, but uh, pressure's also up there. Um, you know, wind speed, wind directions up there, precips up there. There's a lot of them that are very close in relativity. So, it, it but those vary. That varies from phase to phase. That's the other thing we've we've picked apart here within DeerCast. Like, there are certain influencers that are much more important in phase one 
than they are in phase 12 and 13. And the algorithm looks at that and then interprets the importance level and ranks them accordingly. So therefore, they are weighted differently by phase based on the way we've seen them affect the deer by phase. Um, so what kind of, what kind of factors are are different in that kind of way? Do you have an example of one that is really important? Really? Cloud cover is a major differentiator. Yeah. Early season clouds, almost always, always accompany cooler weather, rainy days, and the deer move like crazy. Um, later in the year, you, you, you've eliminated what they're most, what they're most looking for, which is thermal cover. In the, in the early part of the season, you eliminate thermal cover. It cools the earth. They move better. In the latter part of the season, when it's cold and you eliminate the sun, they get cooled off, and therefore they don't move as well. So it is an influencer early in the season. It is something that influences them in a negative way in the late season. It's a great example of how uh, a weather factor differentiates in importance from phase to phase. Hmm. Um, so back to my question I asked before that though. So back to the bad day, you've got the horrible conditions you just mentioned there. What do you then do from a hunting standpoint? What are you, what's your go-to move for those lousy days? I'm going to hunt something on the extreme, um, outskirts of a farm. I'm probably going to go try and fill the freezer with a doe, or I'm going to sit somewhere where I might be able to kill a buck, but I'm also observing something that helps me learn a part of the farm. I do a lot of hunt slash scout days. In other words, I don't think I'm going to go in for the kill. I'm not going for the home run. So I'm going to sit somewhere where I can learn something and become better at a certain part of the farm in future days. I do a lot of observation. Hmm. You know, the cameras only tell you so much. They only show you a few feet, right? You know, you really, the way you learn a farm is with your eyeballs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's step back then because we talked about why this stuff's important. You know, when you when you do have the right conditions, that's going to influence you to, to go into your best spots, to be more aggressive, to go for the kill. When you've got the poor conditions, you're going to stay out a little bit. You're going to be more conservative. You're going to observe, you're going to try to learn, but you're not going to go for the home run. Um, so deer cast is going to be a tool to, to figure all this stuff out, but I want to dive into a little more on each of these influencers. Can you share what the 11 influencers are, um, that you're including in there. I think we've kind of mentioned most of them, but if we haven't, um, I know things like temperature, barometric pressure, wind speed, wind direction, precipitation, moon. Um, what, what are the other ones that I'm missing there? Uh, I don't have the list right in front of me. Um, time of day is a big one, but that's not really a weather influencer, but it, but it is a weather influencer. The barometer, I don't know if you mentioned that, change in barometric pressure, wind speed, wind direction, and then wind as it relates both backwards and forward. That's the other thing that the the app does. It not only looks at the time that you're in today, it's looking backwards and it's looking forwards because it, it interprets how the deer should have just acted. It also interprets how the deer are about to act and then gives you a prediction based on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that so is so it's cool. Looking, it's very, very cool. Uh, average temperature, um, temperature, change in temperature, precipitation rate, change in precipitation rate, moon. Uh, I, does that? I think that's probably 
11 of them. I don't know if I missed any. Those are just off memory. I don't have my list right in front of me, but I think I've hit them all. Yeah, yeah. Cloud so, cover. Did I mention cloud cover? Changing cloud cover? Yep, yep. So I just, I, like you, I geek out over this stuff. This stuff fascinates me so much. And, and obviously a lot of other people, because I know you've been inundated with questions over the years, and I've been inundated with questions over the years on this stuff. So for a few of these, if you're up for it, I, I kind of want to – Touch on, okay, influencer A, and then if you can give me, like, the 20-second, like, overview of, like, the this is this is Cold Front 101, simply because if people haven't heard the past podcasts that we did with you or if someone's brand new to hunting, I want to make sure we at least get the basics out there. But then I've got, like, some really detailed questions about like, specific situations and things like that um, that maybe we can dive into from there. So, so let's, at the highest level, really quick, temperature, cold fronts, can you give me the the – the one-on-one on, on why that's important, what you look at there. And then I've got a few specifics. Well, there's so many things that go into a cold front, right? You know, you're going to have probably a change in wind direction. You're going to have a change in temperature. And if it's the right type cold front, the kind that really gets the moving, you're going to have some type of uh, falling precipitation. That precip will change throughout the season from rain early in the season to potentially sleep during the rut or, or snow and late season, most likely snow. Um, so if you, if you look at every cold front, I always say you want to kill white-tailed deer, don't miss any cold fronts. And I'm talking about just ahead of it, during it, and after it. That, in a nutshell, is when the best of the best deer movement happens. It's just before it, during it, and after it. Not every cold front is created the same. In other words, there are some that barely move the needle and there are some that move it a bunch. What, how the weather changes in and around that cold front, the greater the change with the cold front, generally the more drastic and the better the deer movement. The less the amount of change, the less extreme influence it will have on the deer movement. Okay, that makes sense. So on that topic of fronts, one of the most common questions that I get then is okay what about the timing of the front so you talked about it's good before the front it's good during it's good after i think people are always trying to figure out more detail about that so how far ahead of time and then how long afterwards is it one day after the front passes is it two days is it three days can you give us some detail as far as uh, as that and then also how would you rank that so if i had to choose between before during or after what's one two three all are a one that's for sure. All are a one. Okay. Um, meaning tops. Never miss just ahead during or after a cold front because you never know when the best is going to be or where you're going to be sitting. The back to your question of how far ahead of the front, it's generally it's very close to it. In other words, um, if the front's going to pass during the night, it's that evening sit before. Okay. If, and that just depends on the phase, if it's a phase that, or the time of the year, when afternoon movement is generally a little better than morning movement, in other words, it's a feeding time of the year, take phase one, then, then the, the front that's going to pass during the night is going to influence the previous feeding time, if that makes sense. So if, you're, if, if opening day is the 15th of September, and there's a front supposed to pass at about 10, 11 o'clock that night, the cold front's coming, but it's not there yet. That evening's going to be pretty good because they're going to be feeding in anticipation of that front. 
If, however, it is opening morning when feeding is not nearly as important and say the same time gap is, is in front of you, in other words, dark as at 7 o'clock p.m. or 7.30 or 8, and the front's supposed to pass at 10, so say three hours ahead of the front. Well, if the morning movement at that time of the year is about 7 a.m. and the front's going to pass at about 10 a.m., that's not going to be nearly as, as big of an influencer of the morning as it would have been in the evening because evening times are better that time of the year. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's all very, very detailed. And I said that apps 401, like the app interprets every single one of those factors on a minute by minute basis or second by second. Like it will spit that algorithm out nonstop for you, right? Exactly where you are. It's interpreting everything I just said, but it does it in real time, as opposed to, like I said, it takes me hours to sit and look at a forecast and look at various apps and come up with the actual prediction. The app does it for you. In fact, I found myself getting a little bit sloppy last year because I was so dependent on the app. I mean, I still had all this knowledge in my head, but there were times of the year where I actually forced myself before I looked at the app to go through and come up with a prediction and go, I think it's going to say this. And then I'd go back and, and double check it because you'd ever, you know, it's human nature. You get tired, you get run down you go, well, I'm just going to look at the app instead of looking at all these different sites and figure all this stuff out. Um, because it's really a thinking game, man. If, you, if you're trying to analyze what time of the year in, what all influencers are coming, how they were two or three days ago, how they're about to be, man, the app's a lot easier <laughs> solution. But <laughs> you do it, you just get, you know, it's the understanding of it that, that makes it sweeter. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot of the fun part, putting that puzzle together. But this is, this is nice to be able to look at, you know, to quickly confirm things or to dive in further. Um, now, something just came to mind and I don't know if this is something you guys already have baked in or not, but is there any possibility of there being like a feedback mechanism to this? So if I have the DeerCast app today, is supposed to be a great day. I'm out there and it doesn't end up being that case. It doesn't end up being that way for me or whatever reason. Is there any way? Or right. There... But what, what, what influenced that? Right. Yeah. There's so many outside you know, things. There's so many outside things. So does it skew what, what we feel like we that's why i think everybody should have their ability to to skew their own hunting experiences not everyone else's if that makes sense because what other influencers you don't know how somebody hunts he might be sitting there hunting yeah. on the wrong window or or someone might hunt the same stand 35 days in a row and and the app <laughs> that's, saying, and that's the not a good idea saying, great <laughs> exactly you know <laughs> And the app saying, great, well, every deer in, in the area knows where he sits on what window, you know, he's sitting in the same place, you know, they know where they're going to catch him. They know what side of the, the blind to go on to catch him that day because the wind switched. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that would be, I think, challenging um, at best. Yeah, no, that, that, if, if that, that makes, makes sense. sense. It does. It I does. will tell you that we, we tested it across uh, the entire Drury Outdoors team through a variety of geographies and a variety of different hunting conditions. And it, it had rave reviews from everyone. Uh, so it was beta tested very thoroughly last fall. And I, I'm, I am very, very confident that what the app predicts in terms of deer movement, what they most likely will be doing is accurate in terms of how it will influence the deer herd. The, the thing the app cannot interpret is hunting pressure, predation pressure, overall population, 
um, all those other outside influencers, you know, public ground versus private, uh, gun season, you know, the gun season in Missouri opens November 15th, roughly. Iowa doesn't open till, till December the 7th, you know. So you have to look at it and kind of use common sense and go, you know what? This app always says great, but in reality, I'm kind of seeing good. Well, there might be some other influencers that have that movement suppressed outside of the weather, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, you need, to, so, you need to overlay your own circumstances over top of this because, there's, as you said, there's all these other outside factors that can't be accounted for in something like this that, that exactly. do significantly so influence gotta, things. You gotta you gotta grade it on the curve, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So you you kind of alluded to this next question. I have a little bit, but I want to kind of black and white it here. Um, the timing of the front. Does the timing of the front, in any kind of consistent way, impact the intensity of the activity? So, if you were to say, would you prefer a front to hit? during peak evening activity hours versus overnight versus morning activity versus midday. Like if, the, if we broke up our day into like those four buckets or something like that, and you could pick. Yes, 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 yes. And yes, depending on the time of the year. In other words, a front in September is not, does not affect the deer the same as it does in the middle part of November, as it does in the middle part of de- December, as it does in the middle part of January, because their metabolism is at different speeds during each each of those times. Their testosterone is at different levels during each of those times. Their interest levels and their focus is at is on different things during each of those times. So therefore, they react differently to the front. There are going to be times of the year where the middle part of the day, it's going to be magical to have a front. Whereas other times of the year, it's not going to affect them at all. They won't move until after that front passes. You know, um, it was kind of my example I gave in the early part of the season when afternoons are the, are the order of the day. Well, if you have a front passing within the normal movement time in the morning versus the evening, there, it's just not going to be the same response. The evening response is going to be much better to a front because that's when they typically move. Couple a rising moon with that and you've got all the stars lining up. Pardon, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> You, you move into mid-November when the rut is the major influencer. Weather kind of takes a, a little bit of a backseat, but it's still a major influencer. So it's that's one of the reasons we did the app, because it is so hard to articulate all of this in a podcast and tell you all of this to where someone's, you know, there's there's no one solution because it influences them differently almost on a day-by-day basis. It's It's crazy. Um, so that's why, that's one of the reasons we did the app just to help people understand it better. It, it's a very complex set of, I don't want to say rules, but set of responses to stimulus that we've seen. They vary drastically throughout the year. So that's why we put it into an algorithm form so that it might interpret it and help someone understand when they might move the best or when they might move the poorest. Yeah. 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 It definitely, there's so many different layers and then all the different layers need to be weighted a little bit differently and then also you need to think about how the different layers influence each other um that is that you is got tricky. it that is tricky it's it's tricky man i mean it is it is really really tricky you know i mean it it's just it's just different phase by phase by phase um you know you look at that same front that drops the temperature in the early season by 10 degrees say you were at average, 
temperature for the day and it drops at 10 below, major influencer. Okay, major, because you seldom get a departure that far from average during the early part of the season. Okay, go to fast forward three months into December, middle part, same moon. Okay, because month to month, the moon's going to be roughly doing the same thing. It's only 28 days apart from full moon to full moon. All right, so you're, you're a little bit earlier in the month. 10 degree drop in temperature from average high in December versus versus September monstrous difference you know what i'm saying it, it doesn't have nearly the influence it did in september that it did that are nearly the influence in december that it did in september now if in december it's about to drop 30 now we're talking let's get going that that may it may take that much of a drop to have the same influence on the herd that you had a 10 degree drop in september if that makes sense yeah no and that's a that's a very interesting point one i hadn't really thought about before um but it, that, is all, it is all relative to the season and pressure is the same way, you know, like high pressure in, in December, what it takes to make them move would explode their heads in September. <laughs> it is, unbe- it is unbelievable. The difference the the type pressure that I look for in December is actually a suppressor in, in September because it's relative to the season and the temperatures. Okay. So there are peaks in pressure where it starts to suppress movement. You know, when it gets so high and you've probably seen these days where it's like, Oh my gosh, we're, we're approaching record pressure for this period. Why did the deer not move today? You know, this is high pressure. They're supposed to move. Not necessarily there. You can go above the peak in almost every one of these weather influencers and the app picks those peaks up, you know, how high a wind is too high, how big of a departure from normal is too much how much will put them into a state of shock. Yeah. You, know, you go into, you go into, in, in the uh, early November when the rut's just getting ready to kick, throw 10 inches of snow on them and depart from normal by 40 degrees and watch it shut every, every deer in the herd down. Give me that same front in December and every one of them's coming to a feed field. So it, it, it varies how they react to it during the time of the year and what their system is doing inside. Yeah. That's uh that makes sense. I keep saying that, but it makes sense. Um, and you're, you're going right where I was wanting to go, which is pressure. But very quickly before we do that, I have two follow-up questions. Um, number one, you're talking about the late season fronts. And something that I've heard people mention a lot, I haven't personally seen it as often here in Michigan or in many of the places that I hunt, but I've heard a lot of people talk about that during the late season, not just the big cold front temperature drops, but also actually the opposite. So when the temperature increases to mild conditions, maybe in late December, some people say that's a positive thing. Um, Is that something you've seen? And, And what kind of specifics in that kind of way then would you need for that to be a positive thing? It absolutely, it absolutely is. And and at that time of the year, and really any time of the year, it comes down to energy conservation. And if you watch a deer, and just the example I gave you, front part of the rut, major cold front, snow, it'll shock them and, the, and nothing in the herd will move. Well, they know what's about to happen, and they're conserving energy by bedding and just not doing anything. Whereas if, if it's more life-threatening later in the season, in other words, post-rut, where they, they've already expanded their batteries low and they have to build that energy back up, that same front's going to put them on the food source. And it gets actually accentuated and better once the wind comes back out of the south, the clouds, the clouds clear out, you start having warming trends, then all of a sudden they start moving better. However, that quickly subdues about the second or third day of the warmth. 
Okay. And then that's perfect because my next question was going to be about I never did get the specifics on how many days after a front. So you just mentioned after the second or third day after a warm front in late season. But what about a cold front that hits you know earlier in the year when we're really looking for those cold fronts? Um, how many days after I, that is the last? I find that answer. I find that answer very consistent throughout the season. It's one consistent thing that I've always seen. The first, if you could have one day of north, three days of north, ten days of north, and they're all going to be decent movement and then that first day of south is incredible it's the first warm day they almost always move the best that day after front provided that you've got some high pressure coming in with it that's generally the day that they move the best it will gradually decrease days two three and four until it stabilizes and then all of a sudden you're back into your next front Hmm. okay then let's talk day about two, pressure. Day two of warmth is generally the worst movement you'll see in and around the front. The first warm day with the first south, generally the best. Because I always say the first south, that in all reality, that first warm day might be a west, if you know what I'm saying. And then the, the second warm day might be a south. Well, that second day, even though it's the first south, might not be as good as that first westerly day because it was in truly the first warm up day. So you kind of got to, I always say the first south, but in reality, I should miss, I should restate that in the first warming day. Sometimes those are westerlies and not necessarily south. Uh, but that second day that it's warm, especially if it's two souths in a row, that second day of south is generally very slow unless it's already into the next front and there's another one approaching. So it depends how far out the fronts are and all that good stuff. Okay. That's why the the app looks backwards and forwards as well before it makes a prediction. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started tracking, you know, all you you know Holyfield, the whole story we've been talking about for years with that buck, and I started trying to track, you know, every different daylight sighting I had of him and every different daylight trail camera picture I had of him, and then all these different factors and and trying to correlate something there. So I had okay, sighting X date, time of day date or time of year, um, actual temperature. And then I looked at the previous temperature. So was there a temperature difference of 10 degrees or more over the last two days? Um, what was the moon? What was the wind direction? What was the change in wind direction? I tried to track all these things like you're talking about. And, um, it does get pretty crazy once you start factoring, not just the current, but also the changes, but to all of these points, it really is in many of these cases, it's act, it's not what the temperature is today it's not that the temperature is 75 it's why it's if if it's different it's the delta it's the change that seems to flip deer into gear right it's the changes between these different conditions absolutely that's why earlier when you heard me talk about precip i talked about precip rate and then change in precip i talked about wind speed change in wind speed so it is the delta as much as it is the actual condition that's correct yeah. So, okay, let's uh, move to pressure. Can you give me like the, the very top level cliff notes before we get into my specific questions on that? Absolutely. Sure. You know, I mean, as a general rule, the higher the pressure, the better the deer movement, the lower the pressure, um, the worse the deer movement. Uh, it, it depends though, how long you've been with high pressure and how long you've been with low pressure and where it was and where it's going. So uh, pressure is also relative to the season. So uh, high pressure in the early part of the season is not considered high pressure during the latter part of the season when that cold air really gets ushered in. I like stuff 30.2 to 30.4 in the late season. Early season, I'm tickled to death if it's 29.95 up to about 
30.15, I consider that high pressure during the early part of the season. In fact, during the early part of the season, if it gets too high, it'll shut them down. Consequently, last year we had a couple days at, at bordered record pressure at 30.7, 30.8, and they, di- they didn't move well at all. They almost get a little lethargic on those extremely high pressure days where they move real slow and don't move, move well at all. So there are sweet spots to pressure just like there are sweet spots to temperature or anything else. Well, you just covered several of my specific questions, so you really knocked that one out of the park, Mark, <laughs> because I've had a lot of people ask, you know, as you just said, how barometric pressure is relative to time of year, and a lot of people have been curious, okay, what's what's a high-pressure day in September versus a high-pressure day in November versus December, which you just said, so that's super helpful. Um, now, what about this? Someone had asked if you would rather see a low pressure that's rising or a steady high pressure. So his example was, which scenario would be better in your mind? Would it be like a 29.85 but rising? So is that change what's most important? Or would you just like to have a high 30.2 but steady for several days? And of course, I know this is different depending on the time of year, but... It is. It's very, I would answer yes and yes because at certain times of the year, the bouncing of pressure... Uh, especially during an afternoon set, I, I notice because it, it accompanies as the front's coming in. When the pressure bounces during a normal evening sit, uh, they generally move quite well. In other words, it bounces from low and all of a sudden starts to rise while you're sitting there. It might be 29.4, and it, it bounces and starts heading back up the grid while you're sitting there, say 4.30, 5 o'clock, bam. That's generally a trigger that makes them move when it's during a feeding pattern or feeding time of the year. I, overall, though, I would take, take, take the higher pressure versus that low pressure. It's tricky timing the low pressure. That's one thing I've found. They're not nearly as consistent on that low pressure side of things as they are with the high. They generally move quite well on high pressures regardless of situation. Do you have any theory? I mean, this is I, I think this is only guesswork here, but do you have any theory as to why that might why pressure influences deer movement so much like what the what the physiological impact is that's changing their behavior you know i i'd say it i don't know that it's necessarily the high pressure as much as the front that just passed that ushered that high pressure in if that makes sense so i don't know that it's the pressure itself as much as the condition that just happened in other words sometimes during the heat of the worst of fronts they don't move quite as well and then once the threat of the front passes, they all get out and start moving again. You know, so sometimes I think it's that more so than it is the actual pressure gradient itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I follow you there. It's the barometric pressure is simply a symptom of this yeah. thing that's happening. It's an indicator we can look at, but it's just indicating that this front's moving through and all the things that come with that front are what's pushing deer to do what they do. Exactly. And, you know, if you, I always like, I used to sell on the road and I I don't know if I told this anecdote back in 15 or not, but I could just about tell you, I I sold Mossio for 10 years on the road and from 89 through 98. And I could just about tell you whether I was going to write an order that day or not, based on how the weather was, the mood people are in. Um, You know, they say, you know, the greatest rainfall is where you find the highest suicide rates, that type of thing. It, you go you go to a, a place where it's sunny and high pressure all the time. People are happy and, and they feel good. And, and, and when you live in the Midwest, like we do, you get a lot of different fronts coming through. 
And that low pressure, you kind of feel it, a little groggy, a little draggy, don't feel like getting out. And that high pressure ushers in, man, smile on everybody's face. They're out, they're act- active. And um, it, it just, I think you can feel the same thing that they feel inside your own body and, and your moods and how you feel and how you react to the weather. Yeah. So, so what about this? How do you see pressure impacting wind or thermals or anything like that? And how does that then impact your decisions as far as predicting movement or predicting the quality of hunts, if, if at all? Well, well, high, high pressure makes everybody a better hunter because the thermals are generally going up. Yeah. Um, it makes everyone better, especially in the morning sits. High pressure makes your stand choice better and you can get away with murder on those days those are the days that i go to that stand you sit there and you look and you go i don't want my wind blowing any of these directions but i have to sit but i have to sit here Uh those are the ones i i reserve for the extreme high pressure mornings man i will sneak in there get in that stand and and hunt with the security of the fact that while that deer is probably still going to catch me on the downwind side he's not going to react in nearly as much of a negative way as he would have if the pressure was low man it makes scent crusher better it just it just makes you a better hunter when that pressure is rising and and high yeah that's uh that's a great thing to keep in mind that again something i hadn't thought about as much either but if you have to take a swing for the fences if you have to take that big risk you might as well time it at the right not only good conditions for deer movement but also good conditions for lower risk for you um so that's a great man. thing all about risk management, man. On low pressure, don't go to your best spots unless you've got a safe wind direction. <laughs> don't do it. Yeah. Is there anything on this front? I feel like, I mean, you've been obviously studying this and, and following this and talking about this for a long time, but since we last talked in 15, has your thoughts on barometric pressure and the impacts or theories about any of this stuff, has that changed at all in the last three and a half years or so? The thing that has changed is is that I've seen it work in an adverse effect because we've had so much record pressure over the last few falls. And I've noticed it consistently that on those days where we are nearing record pressure for the the uh, period, it is as much of a suppressor as, as it is an enhancer. So it has changed in that and we we wrapped all of that into the into the app. Okay. Interesting stuff. Now here's something I've, I also I've also witnessed that bounce in the afternoons when, when you're sitting there during a normal, uh, during a phase when afternoon movement is generally the best and you catch a bounce, a severe bounce, especially the Lord is with the higher it's going to, when that bounce occurs, when they're supposed to be moving anyway, during a normal movement time, last two hours, if you will, or, you know, sunset minus 30 minutes or an hour, that is also a major influencer. When you catch it, it's a good one. That's wrapped into the app as well. Okay. I so so I understand here. You're saying, like a early season when evenings are supposed to be great, anyways. If you have that change happening right during the sit, that's especially good. Well, even in later seasons too. I'm I'm just saying. Yeah. When it's a phase where afternoon movement is really good, like the party's over, feedback, green revisited, greener pastures, all of those where where afternoons are optimum. Then when that sucker bounces during those afternoon phases, whoo killer interesting and i'm assuming it's only the bounce up right a bounce a change down is going to be a negative is that correct generally a negative yeah okay. generally a negative however 
it can be a positive. It's, if it's been so extremely high that they didn't move the day before, then they're probably about to when it, when it goes back into a level that's more of a sweet spot for them the next day. Yeah. I have noticed that as well. And generally, the other thing that I think they dislike about that really, really high pressure, what's happening on those days? Almost no wind speed on those days. Almost none. It'll be like three or four mile an hour or, or less the whole day. And they just... I don't know why they get wigged out with low wind speeds. Then all of a sudden, the next day, it drops down a little bit. Wind speed kicks up, boom, every deer in the herd's on their feet again. It's, it's, it's crazy to watch them on it. They're fascinating creatures when you watch them on a day-in and day-out basis. Literally fascinating. Okay, let's take one last quick break to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties for the support of this podcast. And continuing our Land Beat video recommendations series, as I've mentioned in the past, Whitetail Properties has got this great YouTube series going on right now called Land Beat. want to give you a heads up on their latest version of that. They've got another one focused on fall food plots. And Tom James... Really interesting and great resource when it comes to habitat management. In this one, Tom James talks about fall food plots and what his favorite seed combinations are for that kind of annual fall hunting food plot. And he talks about layering different types of forage in there. So you've got attraction from the early season all the way through the late. So check this one out. It's a quick video. It's called Fall Food Plots slash seed combinations for incredible attractiveness came out not too long ago so check that out on the whitetail properties youtube channel yeah so let's just go right there then since you brought it up can you give us the cliff notes on on wind speed and direction i guess how you think that influences things and then uh, i do have a couple follow-ups on that already well i mean again it's the same answer i keep giving it varies per phase uh, but as a general rule, when the wind's out of the north, they, they're generally going to move quite well. And then that first day out of the south, I, li- I think there are definite wind speed sweet spots, though. When that wind is below about seven or eight mile an hour, regardless of direction, they move less than if it is between about eight and 15. Eight to 15 or eight to 18, somewhere in that range, to me, is the wind sweet spot. As you get to 20 and then above that a little bit, it starts to suppress it just a little bit, or it may not suppress it, but it certainly makes them more nervous. There is a sweet spot for wind in terms of overall movement and in terms of overall relaxation of the animal. There is something about a 12 to 14 mile an hour wind where every deer is relaxed, they got their head down feeding, and they're not sitting there wigged out. It's, it's crazy. It's almost like turning a sound machine on for a baby. It'll sleep like, like a baby. Well, those deer will come out and feed, feed like they're supposed to. They're just not nearly as nervous in a mid-range wind as they are in a high wind or a low wind. Some of the worst days are low wind days because they hear everything. You know, no wind, look out. Every deer in the plot's going to have her head up all night long. It's, it's amazing. So that brings me to my next question then on, on wind speed. When you have those no wind days or very, very light wind days, can you talk about the impacts that has not just on deer movement, but then also on your scent? Can you elaborate a little bit on what happens and, and, and what, how that might influence a hunt negatively? It, it, it's, if you're in a high ridge and it's a morning and it's high pressure, that helps you. But where it really hurts you, if there's no wind and you're low in topography of an afternoon sit, you've got some things working against you there. Number one, when you first get to your spot, if you're sitting there three, the last three hours of daylight, say, your pressure is going to be rising. 
You don't have enough wind speed to take your scent to a defined spot, so it's going to be variable, especially if you're low in topography. So you're literally scenting in every direction that you can. Then on those high-pressure days with low wind, when that thermal sets in, that's one of your, your biggest thermal days because it goes from a very warm trend, boom, those thermals hit and take your scent and push it straight to the ground, and it'll be doing it almost a 360-degree radius around your tree. It's why we have been so successful on those days. It's why you see us hunting out of blinds when the wind's not blowing so often. You see us out of blinds a lot, but on those days, I'm generally low in topography, and I'm somewhere in a scent-proof blind, and every window is shut, even if they're fogging up. I have to keep my scent contained inside that, that blind. And it, it makes a huge difference to your over, overall success. I've been blown and boogered and spooked and seen and heard by so many deer on low wind days. It's, it's very tough to get one killed with low winds. So what about if, we, if we're in a scenario and we don't have a good black spline that can kind of seal in things like that? Um, what would be like the safest bet? Ground. You... Ground. Get it down as close to the ground as you can. Get inside of a ground blind. Okay. You can always get that scenario set up for yourself. Yep. 100% get low and get in that blind and sit there and don't freaking move because they're going to catch you. Yeah. What's the threshold there? What's like, where do you draw the line as to dangerous seven. and low? Seven and below. I hate it. Interesting. Predicted seven and below is really a, a booger, especially if you're five and below. Whew. Almost, it's almost impossible to kill them those days. Plus, they're going to react to the sound of your bow. And I'm talking archery now. I mean, guns a different scenario, obviously. But if you're talking with a bow and you're trying to kill a deer, that's when you do it. Pat yourself on the back because it's hard to do. Yeah. Now, I've got a scenario I want to lay out for you related to this kind of, but the opposite. Um, and I, I'm curious to hear if you think I made the right decision or the wrong decision, because I was put into a situation where I had to think through all these things we're talking about. I was looking at all these different factors to try to determine the first day to go hunt Holyfield last year. And I wanted to wait and strike the, for the first time with the best possible situation um, because he's very impacted by pressure. I thought I'm just going to have a handful of opportunities probably to get a stab at him. So coming to the season, I, I, well, I take, I take what I said for a second back. I did hunt opening day, but then after opening day, I said, okay, I'm not going to go back in until all the stars aligned. One of the things I was using was the fact that I had historical encounters with him the past two years. One year was on the 24th, one year was on the 25th. And so I thought, okay, in 2017, I'm going to wait till that time frame because that's when he starts becoming daylight active based off these two years of history. So I thought somewhere around the 24th, 25th, 26th, give or take, is when I'm going to start hunting. So I had that in the back of my mind. And then I thought, okay, I want that time frame assuming good conditions are present. So we get to like the 20th, the 21st of October, and as you probably remember, there's this big cold front rolling through. And I thought, oh my gosh, the deer hunting gods have shined on me. This is perfect. His historical patterns line up with like the first really great cold front of October. This is going to be dynamite. So I said, all right, the 24th, I'm hunting. It was going to be like 15 degrees cooler than the day before. Um, I had the right wind direction to hunt an area where I thought he'd be. So I kind of had it set in my mind, I'm going to do it. That's the day I'm going to go in that night. But when I got to that day, the 24th, now all of a sudden it was really windy. It was much windier than what they'd been showing over the past couple of days. And I found myself, it was like noon, and I'm sitting here going back and forth in my head. Do I hunt 
because the cold front passed, the wind's the right direction I need, the time of year is right, you know, we've got the pre-rut starting to ramp up. History tells me that he starts moving right around now. I can be right in that area. All those things said go, 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 go. But then I see the wind speeds at like 20 miles an hour, 21 miles an hour. And is that enough of a negative impact to say no, negate everything else because that's that's going to hurt things. And again, I'm thinking I really need this first sit to be great is what I was thinking in my head. Well, I would have hunted him. Yeah. Yeah. You would have hunted if, if him. If you asked me whether I would have hunted him, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, then I feel less bad because I did go hunt him, but I well, I went and hunted. I got into the tree and the winds were worse than even the weather had said. It ended up probably being like twenty four, twenty five, something like that, and then I felt like it was swirling a little bit. It seemed like it was such a strong wind, it seemed to be just blowing off direction and pitching in towards the bedding. So I was in the tree for 10, 15 minutes. And then I said, ah, this, I'm screwing things up. And I actually climbed out and left and just didn't want to screw it up anymore. So, so you're saying though, my initial gut reaction was okay. It wasn't stupid to go in there. So was your secondary reaction. I would have left the moment it kicked backwards. I would have, I would have ran. <laughs> yeah, I basically did. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would have, you know, the mo the mo and you know, if you feel like you know where deer's bedding area is at and you go in and, and what you're dealing with the, there in that part of the season, the the heavy foliage acts like topography. So in other words, the wind can actually kick over the treetops and then turn around and kick back because it's it's kicking off of a blocker, which is the full, you know, if that would have been uh, November 24th and 25th and leaves are gone, the wind might have been consistent for you in that same spot, you know? Hmm. Uh, that's why I, I wind scout a lot of places or I certainly – when those things happen to me under those conditions and I write that down somewhere in my mind or on a piece of paper, I can't hunt here on this speed and ever again during this time frame, you know, so you'll, you'll learn that. And you only do that. Like I said earlier in the podcast, you learn by making your mistakes. You got to go in there and get banged around a little bit and go, Whoa, that's bad. The wind kicked back. Yeah. And more often than not, I think people, most people would have just went there and sat the whole, whole, whole damn night and said, hell with it. I'm here. I'm, <laughs> You know, that's yeah. bad. Don't make mistakes. Like, don't let a deer know that you're hunting them. And if you know that your wind is blowing into a bedding area, you're making a dumb decision. Yeah. So so on that front, I, I sometimes have found earlier, I'm, I'm making better decisions now, as we just talked about. But one of my excuses used to be, if I'm in a tree stand and then, like, the wind seems to switch like that, or I notice that the wind has switched and it seems to be blowing into a bedding area, and I'm like, oh, shit, it's blowing there. It's screwing things up. My, I used to say, well, you've already done the damage. It's already been blowing there for a few minutes. It's, it's Any deer that was there is, is gone or is smart to what's going on now. You might as well just sit it out because maybe something will come from one of these other directions. Um, that's what I used to do. Is, that, is it good that I'm not doing that anymore? Or is there something to be said about, yeah, there, it's like a sunk cost. You might as well see what happens on the other side. Uh, depends how much time you have, you know, um, for me, I'm down and I'm out and I'm somewhere where the wind's safe or I'm in my truck up on a viewing point just to watch what happens. You know, um, I don't like putting my wind over somewhere that I do not want it to be. And I, I avoid it at all costs and eliminate it any chance I get. I do not like that. It's safe wind directions cannot be overstated. Having one for every single wind condition, speed, and time of year is very, very important. 
Um, that's why I think no matter how many spots you got, you still don't have enough. Go find a good condition that you can hunt in where you have a safe wind direction. Because at the end of the day, if you smell you, if you're bow hunting, nine times out of ten, it's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Switching gears. Yeah, and, 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 and you don't see it happen. Like, that's what's wrong with it. Like, that's how why it's hard to learn. You don't see the deer more often than not, if you're in thick cover, that's five, six, seven hundred da- yards downwind reacting to your your butt sitting there hunting on the wrong wind. You don't see it, so therefore, oh, I didn't hear anything blow. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, five different deer downwind anywhere from 300 to 800 all smelled you and all took a change in direction and all will not forget your position. Like, so- they are masters at remembering um, being scared. In other words, human scent scares them. When you scare a deer, he never forgets it. It imprints in his mind and he will not forget where he got scared, how he got scared, and he will avoid that situation in the future. You have to make sure that you're not scaring that deer and making him afraid. Think of the thing, think of some of the deepest memories in your mind when you were a kid. If something scared the living crap out of you, you never forget it the rest of your life. Deer the same way. Yeah, you know, when I was two or three, I put my hand on a burning grill, and I've never done it since. <laughs> yeah, and you won't ever again. Or just any any little thing that scares you. When you get that adrenaline bump where you're scared, truly scared, you never forget that. And deer don't forget it either. Yeah. That's why they get so hard to kill in pressured areas. Mm-hmm. So two things that I've wondered about often on, on this topic that you just mentioned there, and you, you kind of throw out some numbers, but I want to pin you down on a couple of things here. Um, wind distance. So some, so oftentimes I've wondered, okay, how far away do I need to be worried? If I'm crossing a field and there's a bedding area way downwind, but it's, it's 200 yards or 700 yards, or what's the distance that you think it's okay to be from a deer bedding area or where you, wherever, maybe or if it's the opposite, it's at night and the feeding, whatever it might be, what's the distance that you think we need to be concerned about the threshold there? And then are there any kind of obstacles? How bad do you stink? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. How clean a boy are you? You know? So, uh, I, I think that would change based on how fanatic you are about scent control. If you are freaking over the top with washing and clean, um, unscented soap the best you can find uh titanium added ozone your clothes on a daily basis clean your body two and three times a day ozone every single thing every piece of equipment you have then you could probably get by at maybe two three hundred yards and they may not detect you if you do it quickly i mean you can't stand there and let it permeate the area however if you're sloppy and you got human scent all over you and every other scent from the day you know, you might affect them in a half mile, you know? Interesting. Now, what about obstacles? I heard someone recently kind of theorizing that they thought stuff like a big field of standing corn or really, really thick cover of some kind, that might block enough wind that you could get away with a closer distance um, from a wind standpoint and not get scented. Do you think there's anything to that? Depends on speed and your smell again, in my opinion, and how fast it passes that deer. Like, it... it Deer's natural reaction is to stay put and stay bedded. And it's, it's one of the only reasons we ever kill them. If they, if they got up and ran 
every single time they smelled a human, heard a vehicle, heard a four-wheeler, heard a guy talking, you'd never kill them. Luckily, their natural um, defense mechanism is to just stay bedded. So that's why you can walk to your stand, even even on like, you know, make a dumb choice going into your stand and, and, and walk right by deer if it's in the cover of darkness and you do it quickly, they're more than likely going to accept it and they'll calm back down after an hour or two. They forget what happened. Um, luckily, they will stay put more often than not. So I always go to my stand rather quickly, especially if I have a, a strong wind because it's covering your sound. Uh, if I've got a good visual you know, position to where I can sneak in, I go very quickly. I'm, I'm a very quick access guy because I don't want my wind going downwind of any one position for a very long period of time. Something I just thought of that I that I think you alluded to when you were talking about the original influencers, um, but I didn't ask about yet, was the change in wind speed. Um, is there anything there that you're seeing a, a, as a big influencer? Is the, is the change from high to low or low to high or anything like that pushing deer in one way or another? Only in the sense that as it changes in and out of that sweet spot that I mentioned, okay. I love 7 to about 20. Somewhere in that range is really good. Once you start to go above it, it can suppress it a little bit. Once you go below it, it can suppress it a little bit. Okay. okay. So as it floats in and out of the sweet spot, always think in terms of that. Look for that sweet spot. Man, those days when it's out of south and it's sustained at 12 till dark on that first south, look out. They're all coming. Something you talked about, I think last time we, we had this conversation, that you said that you were investigating um, but hadn't come to firm conclusions yet was humidity, relative humidity. Is that something where you have I found, any I conclusions? Found no cor- I found no correlation. Okay. I have studied it and studied it, and I cannot put a correlation between humidity and deer movement. I can't do it. I've had high humidity days where they move their butts off. I've had low humidity days. To me, it was other weather influencers had a much greater effect on them than the actual humidity. Okay. Then sticking with moisture, then talk to me about precipitation. Love it. Absolutely love it, especially when we haven't had it for a while. If you're into a dry spell and it starts, it goes back to that delta, you know, things are changing. You've been dry. It's about to get wet. Get ready because they're fixing to move and move in a big way. If it's been wet, sustained three, four days, heavy rain, when it's about to stop, it is the biggest trigger you will ever see for a white-tailed deer in your life. I don't give up. I don't care if it's at 9, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the day. When it slows down, they're fixing to move. So what about the intensity? I get a lot of people, I personally love rain, but you hear a lot of people say, oh, they're not going to move during the middle of the storm or during the middle of the all-day rain. Um, do you have any so thoughts on that? The heavier the rain, the less likely they are to move during it. The lighter the rain, the more likely they are to move during it. Those light, misty days, like fog bordering on mist, man, they're going to move their tails off. Heavy fog is a suppressor, but those those days where it's real wet and damp in the air and you can still see, if fog affects your visibility, it's probably affecting theirs. And if it reduces visibility down to where you can hardly see, they're not going to move very well. Um, if, however, it's one of those days where it's foggy just above where you can see, you know, it's kind of just moisture in the air and then it turns into a light precip. Woo. That's a generator, man. Look out. 
hmm. cools that body, they're going to move. Light precip is fantastic. Snow's the same way. Heavier the snow, the less they're going to move. Lighter the snow, the more of an influencer it is. Yeah, I was going to ask about snow next. Is there anything, um, what about accumulation? Have you noticed any kind of correlation between a certain amount? Like is 12 inches of snow going to result in, in a heavier feeding impulse than a one inch snow? Depends on the time of the year and how many snows we've already had. If it's a, if it's the first snow, it, they'll react one way. If it's the tenth snow, they'll react a different way. Once they get used to it, the snow really doesn't affect them that much anymore. But they got to equalize to it and they got to get used to it in their environment. You know, snow down in Texas and watch them versus snow up in Michigan and watch them. It affects every deer herd differently depending on how used to it uh, they are or how not used to it they are. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like. You know, you got to use you got to use your own common sense in certain areas. You know. Yeah. We had snowed out that Texas ranch, and I mean, they literally didn't move for two days. It's interesting. Freaked them completely. Out. Yeah, and I feel like I could see that's a unique scenario. I think, but in, if I were to take a look at a lot of what we're talking about here, one of the core like consistencies is whenever we veer from the average or we veer from the status quo that seems to cue this change in behavior with deer, whether it be the change in temperature or the change in wind or the change in precipitation. Um, would you say that that's a consistent thing we're seeing here over and over again is, is it's that shift. It's the shifting conditions oftentimes that's triggering something. Um, that seems to be like, it, the, it, the, it is, it is quite often change, which the weather's ever changing, right? So their energy conservation or, you know, energy consumption is really what they're doing. They're either going to conserve energy or they're going to go try and recharge their batteries. Really depends upon uh, what time of the year it is, how big the front is, how much change there is. I mean, that's how they live. You know, they have to eat. They are slaves to their stomach. And it revolves around, the, you know, those fronts, how much it threatens their well-being, how much it threatens their ability to stay at peak form. All of those things will affect them. So it really depends on the time of the year and how vicious the front is. And it, it changes through each phase drastically, honestly. Yeah. What, uh, hmm. let, let, let's, let's switch to, to something different here. Um, because there's one topic that everyone likes to argue about. And you've got some, some strong opinions about it, I think, that are interesting, but they're counter to some opinions by many other people. And this is the moon, of course. Um, can you give me the Mark Drury 101 on your thoughts on the moon, and then uh, we'll go from there? Weather trumps moon in all cases, but the moon is a major, major influencer to deer activity. If you take the five to seven days on either side of the full moon each month, you're going to see the peak of daylight activity, whether it be morning or evening. If you take the five to seven days in and around the dark of the moon, you're generally going to see the least amount of activity. That has been my observation for the past 20 plus years. The app interprets that on a day in and day out basis. And our, our history within our journal shows that. If you want to watch the Drury Outdoors Journal each and every year and watch it when it lights up, Watch the few days that precede the full moon and the full few days that follow it, and then compare and contrast that with the days that precede and follow the dark of the moon. Now, does that, a lot of these factors you talked about, you've said that at certain times of the year, 
an influencer will be weighted more heavily. So does no, the moon... it's weighted the same. It's weighted the same throughout every phase. Okay. Okay. Now what's that your... is one influencer that did not change. Interesting. Now what about? Um, I'm sure you've heard about the red moon charts and days, and that's essentially the overhead underfoot. Um, have you seen anything there? Any thoughts on on that theory that a lot of people seem to have? Because I know, if I remember right, the moon. The, the days that you just mentioned ahead and after the falling or the full moon, that typically coincides with the moon setting and rising times matching up with those key morning or evening timeframes. I know that's something you've pointed to when those things match up. That's a, that's a good time. Um, folks like Adam Hayes or someone would say, well, when the red moon, which is overhead or underfoot matches up with your key morning or evening times, those are the best. What's your take on that? I haven't noticed that nearly as much. Um, what I have noticed is that during certain times of the year, certain times of the day are very important. In other words, if you look at midday on September the 15th and compare that to midday on November the 15th, drastic difference in how the deer are going to move as it pertains to time of day. That's why I mentioned earlier when you, when you download the app and look at it, Always watch time of day for each individual phase because we're going to break down what times of the day are optimum. So September the 15th, give me a, a moon that is overhead or underfoot at noon. It's not going to influence them because it's not a normal time that they would be moving, not nearly as much as it would. However, if you look at it on November the 15th, when it is a normal time that they might be moving, it will absolutely influence them more. So it really comes down to what time of the day do they normally move during that time of the year? If you look at the app, most of the year, it's the first hour and a half to two hours and the last hour and a half to two hours. A lot of the year, it's the first hour, last hour, as it pertains to sunrise. Around sunrise for the next hour to hour and a half to, an oh, about 30 minutes before sunrise to the 30 to 45 minutes that follow sunrise. Those are that's deer 30, both morning and evening throughout the year. However, there are those phases in mid November where you could throw that out the window and look at the middle part of the day and go, okay, everything is moving between about they start then about the time that they end during re the rest of the phases and they end about the time they normally start during the rest of the phases. So it is drastically different. So there is a correlation in how well they move with the moon, but you have to time that and compare it to what phase you're talking about. Yeah. So I know when we chatted last on this topic, we talked about the moon in relationship to the rut. And if I remember correctly, you had talked about the fact that, you know, same as most biologists and everyone point to that the rut is relatively consistent. It's tied to photo period, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I know, as you've mentioned, a lot of the states, as you guys put it into the deer cast app, peak in estrus around like November 13th or 14th or 15th, that seems to be peak estrus dates for most of the Midwest, a lot of parts of the country. Um, but yep. you did say that the moon illuminates certain portions of the rut and makes those better for hunting. Um, could you expand on that a little bit in general, but then talk to us about what that's going to do this year than you think? Absolutely. The um, rut differs in intensity each and every year, in my opinion, because the moon, that same influence that I'm talking about, if you look in and around the 10 to 14 days around the full moon, specifically the 10, five before, five after, and compare that to the five before and five after the dark, 
as to when you see the deer and how much daylight activity you see, it expands it in and around the full moon. It decreases it in and around the dark of the moon. Therefore, if the full moon hits during a normally good phase of the rut, in other words, the seeking phase, oh my goodness, man, did we have a rut. Well, it enhanced an otherwise great phase. If, however, the full moon hits like it's going to this year during some tougher phases, in other words, it's going to be full at the tail end of the um, uh, October lull, and also again at the tail end of November, which is parties over and on into uh, um, Green Revisited, it's going to be a little bit tougher and a little bit later because it's coming in phases that aren't normally nearly as good. And conversely, the dark of the moon, which subdues movement, is going to be hitting in and around those phases that are generally better. So you're going to see you're going to be, see shortened periods of activity, first hour, last hour, and not nearly as much during the middle part of the day this year until you get in and around that full moon. Uh, I think October could be deadly for some really mature bucks on scrapes as we lead into the full moon, going into like the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, leading into that full moon. And then right after that, as, as movement switches over to mornings, like 26th, 27th, catch a front in and around the full moon, either leading into it or just following the full moon two or three days. And you're going to see some major monsters get killed in and around scraping activities at the food source because those are the first places they're going to go looking for the first available dough. It could be dynamite. If it's warm, it's going to subdue it way down. It's not going to be nearly as good. Going into November, I think it could be a tougher seeking phase and into the peak of the rut. It's going to be more subdued first 30 minutes, last 30 minutes. Uh, but then when you get back into that full moon around November the 24th, I think it is, then all of a sudden you're starting to see deer free up, go back to the food source. That's when you get back on your green, green uh, plot and you look for that cold front and then catch them back coming to green. Green revisited in November this year will be fantastic for some giants, in my opinion. So do you think that this full moon, or the, what you're talking about, how that affects intensity of activity during the daylight that we can see as hunters, as you mentioned, this year it does not line up with the traditional time frames that we're expecting the most seeking and chasing and, and daylight activity that we hunters want. Do you think it makes so much of an impact that if you had like a week of vacation time or two weeks of vacation time during the rut, I think most guys would usually say maybe the first two weeks of November are a safe bet for typical best rutting activity. But the moon, as you're describing it, is not focusing on or is not going to help us out during that time frame do you think the moon has so much of an impact that you would not say those would be the best two weeks anymore uh no those are still the best two weeks because that's still the phases where they're going to move the best however it's going to subdue it you're not going to have as much daylight activity so what then you're depending on is the weather uh if you get bad weather during that period it's going to seem like an awful rut if you get good weather during that period it's going to seem like a good rut uh, if the moon was lined up and you had great weather, then you go, oh, my goodness, it's the rut of all ruts. So it really takes several factors lining up at once in order to make something incredible versus just good or poor. Okay. I follow you there. And that, that's, that's kind of what my assumption was. Um, so that, that makes sense to me. So I've got one last kind of line of questioning here before I – take up your entire night, Mark. Um, if we're talking predicting deer movement, it's not just outside factor. It's not just like atmospheric 
factors like weather. It's not things just like the moon, but there also can be something to be said about knowledge. Like Intel can help you predict deer movement. So this is something that obviously DeerCast can't do for you. This is something that you as a hunter have to do. Um, but this is something I know you've talked about a lot already today. You've mentioned the importance of like your long distance observation sits, things like that. And then I brought up earlier when I was talking about that late October hunt for Holyfield, how I was trying to take advantage of annual patterns. The fact that I knew that this deer had done something two years prior consistently, I was hoping he'd do it again for a third year. Um, so I guess if we continue the pattern we've done, can you give me a quick overview of your thoughts on how annual patterns and what you can learn from historical trail camera pictures can help you predict deer movement? Um, and then I've got a few specific things that I've always wondered about that, um, that I'm hoping you can help me understand. Absolutely. You know, they're extremely habitual animals. They generally do similar things during similar times of the year. The things that can affect that are moon phase and overall crop rotation and overall mass crop production. So while you could scout a deer one year, you were, you were given your Holofield example a while ago, and I thought back to the year that you mentioned uh, would have been 16 when that moon would have been very favorable for that period, uh, specifically September 24th and 25th. I don't recall what 15's moon was, but 16's moon would have been very favorable right then. Uh, so that could have been the thing that had him on his feet during daylight. So always keep those conditions in mind and understand that there may be influencers on certain days that have him on his feet. The best thing you can do is go back and look at weather history for those dates and go, okay, why did he move on daylight activity here? What was it about the weather? Was it a major cold front? What was the wind? What was the departure from average? What was the pressure? What had the weather been and what was it about to do and try to understand why he moved that day and then look at what the moon phase was. So I look at historical data from my photos. I always scout a year in advance, but then I take this year's coming conditions in terms of moon, how it affects the rut what the mass crop is, what the actual crop rotation is, and then try to apply that to the own knowledge within my head and go, okay, what's he going to do this year? So it's one thing to analyze past information. It's another thing to take it, interpret it, and then make a prediction on how he's going to maneuver through the season based on all those conditions this coming year. Yeah. So, so you, you, you're, you're, you are who you are because you're a rock star, Mark, because those are exactly all the things I've struggled with to try to figure out, which is, you know, so what matters more? Is it the date? So should I be so tied to those dates, October 24th, 25th, like I was, or, or do the specific conditions that happened matter more? Should I have been more so looking for, okay, I don't care whether it was October 24th and 25th. I more so should be looking for the X moon with the 15 degree or more temperature drop and high pressure. Um, would you rank one over the other or how do you, how do you process all that in your head when you're weighing those things? I would have looked at conditions for sure. And I would have looked at what he was, which direction he was heading, like what food source was he going to? What was he coming back to? How good was the mass crop? How much did it affect his daylight activity? How poor was the mass crop? You know, all those different conditions. And then you look at this year, the, the Andrew dealt and see what he's doing. You also look at the health of the deer. And this is something you, I, I don't talk about a great deal, but it's something that absolutely makes a difference. In other words, I have seen deer in supreme health 
because they've had great feed all summer. They've had great rainfall. And then they get into the fall and they move their butts off because they're in super good condition. And then the next year you go through a drought, you got EHD lingering. They don't have the food source quality that they had all year. They don't feel as well, in my opinion, and therefore they don't move as well. So I look at the overall health of the deer herd. What's his rack look like from one year to the other? Did he all of a sudden not grow the rack you expected him to grow? Why did he not grow it? Okay. Did he have something nagging at him the previous year? Was it an injury? Was it a foot injury? Was it an antler injury from another deer? And is that why he was nighttime all all year last year? Holy crap. He had a small rack last year, even though he went from three to four, he looked the same at age four that he did at age three. Uh Oh, he blew at age five. Has his health regained? Is he back to the shape he was in at age three? Can I expect similar movement out of him at age five that I can at age three, even though his metabolism is going to slow down, he's physiologically mature. Might he move a little better than he did at age four? So you can look at a deer's health from year to year and almost, almost every time it will be an indicator along with weather and moon as to the overall amount of daylight activity he gave you. I also look at the herd dynamics, the population. Was I in a, in a population area where the does were way out of whack? Oh, all of a sudden they changed the season and we were allowed to take a lot more does or CWD sharpshooters went in and shot a lot more does or shot more deer and took the population down. Is he going to move more because there are fewer does available or conversely, the state took the doe limit down in this area. There are more does. I'm seeing more does this year than I've ever seen. Is he going to move less because there are more does available? So you have to look at almost every aspect that could affect that deer's movement and then put a game plan together on him because there are certain years where they move very well and certain years where they don't. Some of that's health, some of that's weather, but a lot of it is just all the other uh, aspects that influence him in an annual basis. Huh. Wow. You're uh you're blowing my mind right now, Mark, because those are a lot of interesting things to think about. And as you were walking through that like hypothetical scenario, a lot of it was kind of matching up with my Holyfield situation last year because 15 and 16, he was very daylight active. He was following, I, I kind of had, he had some consistent behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And then last year, now this could also just be because he was more mature, but last year he ghosted all of October. I wasn't getting many pictures, no daylight activity. He didn't do the things he'd done in the past. He showed up in early November for about a 12-day period, and then he was a ghost. He was completely off all my cameras, no sightings, nothing for the next month and a half. And then I found his shed in January. So he shed really early. So maybe he had some kind of injury. Yeah. Yeah, something's nagging at him. When a deer's not moving during daylight, and he should be, something's nagging at him. He's got a foot injury. He's got a horn that he got horned. He's got a touch of DHD. He's trying to recover from it. He's got some virus. He's got some infection and he's not moving, man. I've seen him. We've sat there and watched him freaking uh, hoof rot in December bucks that have been moving great all, all November. You get a muddy December. They get infection in their hooves because uh, of all the scratches on their hooves from running through the rut. They get a little infection in that leg, man, it shuts them down. They can hardly walk anymore. The next year, they don't, they don't move very well because they've had that infection and they didn't, they didn't do very well. Conversely, I've seen the opposite. If a deer gets injured early in the season, like October, he gets a cut, all right, and then he doesn't participate in the rut, sometimes that healing process 
that took place because of whatever bugged him in, in September, October that holds him out of the rut ends up making him an incredible Kong the next year because he did not partake in the rut and, and pull all of his body weight down. He was actually healing up during the rut, and then the next year is the year you see his rack explode. I, I truly believe that that's one of the factors why you see these unbelievable monsters just pop up and you go, how in the hell did that happen when he looked like this last year? It's probably because he did not participate much in the rut the previous year. And it might have been an injury that, that put him on the DL during the toughest period of their life each and every year. And that's why he rebounded, went through the winter healthy, and then came out of it smelling like a rose. Herd health and individual deer health has a lot to do with your ability to take any particular deer at a year and also what he's going to look like when you take him. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I can I could see that being the case for sure. Um, hmm. This is some really interesting. All five year olds, all five year olds are not created different. Are all not are all not created the same. All six year olds are not created equal. They are different animals with different personalities, dealing with different things in their life. They're, they're a lot like dogs or cats <laughs> or people. I mean, there's stuff nagging at them out there. And and the more you watch this herd health with CWD, EHD. And the, the minerals that they take in and what health they're in with drought, how much rainfall they got, what the winter was like the previous year, all of those things end up being factors that end up controlling deer movement in future years. Yeah. Look at how, look at how subdued and the movement was following the EHD outbreak of 12. Not only did we have fewer deer because they died, we had a sick herd that was trying to, the ones that got it that didn't die from it were trying to get rid of it, and it subdued the movement for the next couple seasons, in my opinion. They just, we didn't have as many. They, they weren't healthy. The racks looked like crap. It took years to get that worked out of the herd. They're yeah. finally now getting back to where they should be, where the herd starts. The herd now, to me, resembles what it did in 11 and 12 before it hit. Yeah. And here we are dealing with a monstrous drought in the Midwest again. It is almost unbelievable that we're put up against this again this year. Yeah. But that's that's the way it goes, man. That's what they're dealing with every year. It's all weather related. Yeah, yeah. So one last question on this annual pattern thing that, that popped into my head as you were kind of walking through this um, those couple items there. And I've heard a couple people theorize about this, and that is the idea of looking at annual patterns within doe family groups so that you might be able to predict when like maybe a certain mature doe sure. might go into esters at the same time every year. And if you know that the best doe bedding area in your farm is over, you know, by the Creek, that whatever the most, that mature doe might be back there year after year. And if she comes into esters, the first doe, you know, every, if she's the first one to come in esters every year, you might know to focus there in a certain time frame. Is there anything to that you think? hundred percent accurate. I, I would adhere to that 100%. I think that was a, a very well articulated that that deer is not stupid. If he went there and she, she came into estrus early the previous year, guess who he's going to seek out early the next year. He's not dumb. That is absolutely a true statement. And herd health goes into those participation in the rut. If them honeys aren't out there moving around, those bucks don't have to move around. You know, how well the does move sometimes is indicative of how well the bucks are going to move. The does are what caused the frenzy. Yeah, yeah. So if you saw a particularly great amount of rutting activity during, 
maybe on this property early in the year, let's say for whatever reason, October 28th through the 31st, it was just lights out on this property the last two years. It's probably a good indicator that there's a reason for that maybe outside of other factors and that you should make sure to be at that spot again, maybe around that time frame. Yes, but it could be a food source that has a certain doe group in that area. It may just be that there's more does there that year. It might be because there's acorns falling. The next year, there may not be an acorn crop. They could be a half mile away on, on a cut cornfield, and then all of a sudden, the magic circle moves over there. So make sure you're trying to interpolate everything, You know, not just, oh, it happened this year, so it's, it's going to happen again next year. Yeah. It might be three or four years before that same scenario happens again, but don't forget it because it's going to repeat itself at some point. You've got to look at everything else and, and go, why are they there? You know, are they there every year? Is it a food plot that I put there that wasn't there last year? You know, is it a clover field that's green this year, but it wasn't last year because we had a drought? Is it acorns that are dropping early? You know, those types of things. Yeah. So look at why the does are there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you see, you see a pretty significant flip-flop with the crop rotation then from corn to beans, corn to beans a lot of years? Massive. Yeah. It's massive. Yep. 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 That makes sense. Well, uh, Mark, I've kept you longer than I'm sure you wanted probably. So, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let you get off the line now and get back to important things in life. Um, but this is, as it always is fascinating. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and I guess any more details regarding DeerCast that you want to share with the audience? We haven't talked about timing of when that's going to be available yet. Can you talk about that too? And anything else folks should know if they want to get their hands on that? When's your podcast going up? This is going to go out Thursday of next week, which is the 29th, I think, maybe. Oh, perfect timing. It'll be available at 28, God willing. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers are very crossed. You bet. I hope we don't. We have put a, a tremendous amount of support behind this app in terms of marketing. And our biggest fear is that on 828, it something crashes so we won't know you know it's kind of like y2k we're not going to know what happens until it gets here so um you know it's due out on 828 so god willing it'll be available when your podcast goes up okay okay and they can find that just by going to is that available on apple and android and all those things and just go to their app stores you got it man going to be under DeerCast, D-E-E-R-C-A-S-T, one word, DeerCast. Perfect. Well, uh, I'm definitely going to be picking up as soon as it comes out, and I think just based off what you've shared with us today, i got to imagine there's going to be a whole lot of other folks that are going to be very intrigued to check it out as well. So I'm excited about it, Mark. Uh, thanks for putting in all the work for that kind of thing, like for putting in so much time and energy to create a tool like that for us hunters. I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being here and answering these questions. Man, I'm happy to do it. I hope everybody downloads it, enjoys all the different content in there, watches the kills as they happen this year, looks back at some of our old VHS stuff. I've been sitting there watching videos that I haven't watched in 25 years. I'm not joking. King <laughs> of the Spring, Sound of Spring, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, what were we thinking? It's pretty <laughs> funny, honestly. If you want to have a laugh in the, in the app, go into the old video section and watch it. And then, of course, DeerCast, we're anxious to hear back from people how we can tweak it. The algorithm is, is relatively easy to tweak, and we're going to be tweaking it as the seasons come and go. You know, if there's something that we're missing, we're going to add it in there. If there's something that's a little too optimistic, we'll pull it down. 
And uh, I, I think it's going to be a tremendous tool for people to help them learn. And I hope everybody downloads it and, and check it out and let us know what you think about it. That's one of the reasons we have it as, as a, the inaugural season at, at no charge. It's a free app this year. Uh, next year, it will probably move into a pay model for certain parts of it. There'll still be a, a large portion of it that'll be free, but there will be certain portions of it that'll be a pay model. Uh, but we want people to, to get it, use it, feel it, like it. Uh, like it or hate it, we want to know about it, and uh, we want to make it better. And, and we all we all get better if we learn. That's that's one thing I know. You never want to stop learning. That right there, I think, is the perfect way to end this out. Right there, if if all of us can continue to learn and grow as deer hunters, it's going to be a good thing. So, I wish you all the luck Big in the time. world, Mark. Hope you have an amazing season. Same to you. Are you still on Holyfield? Do you have pictures of him this year? So he, I I found a shed. So I believe he's alive. He does not live on the farm I can hunt during the summer. I've never got summer pictures of him. He always shows up at, you know, September 7th, 10th, somewhere around there. Um, so I'm hoping he shows back up again. Um, I just don't know yet. I've seen a, there's a big eight point velvet buck that I've seen way off in the distance, uh, a little ways away from that property that I think could maybe be him, but I can't say 100% for sure. So the question still is unanswered. Your moon is very reminiscent this year as it was in the fall of 2016. Those pictures should be very helpful to you. Oh, all right. Well, that is a good pro tip. I'm going to go take a look at those and think about that some. Sounds good, my man. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. Whew. So uh, what did you think about that one? Talk about just a truckload of information a lot to process there uh if you're at all like me you're probably going to want to go back and listen to this one again maybe take notes think back through different past situations of your own think about future situations it's it's just fascinating stuff mark's got a lot of interesting theories and this DeerCast app i think it's going to be a pretty neat tool i've already been checking it out and um, i like how it can kind of help you confirm or refute kind of what your assumptions or your theories might be about upcoming deer movement based on your own understanding of these factors. So hopefully you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Just want to remind you again, follow along with my hunts. I take off here in just a couple days for Montana and North Dakota. You can follow all that on the Wired Hunt Instagram account, the Wired Hunt YouTube channel, the Wired Hunt Facebook page, and then we will continue with our podcast as well. And oh, by the way, Rut Radio kicks off next week too. So Lots and lots of exciting things on the horizon, not to mention maybe your very own hunting seasons as well. And if you are going to be hitting the woods here in the coming weeks or month, good luck out there. Shoot straight. Enjoy your season. It's going to be a great one. I think we are all learning together throughout this process. We are all becoming better hunters, and I think this year it's all going to pay off. So thank you so much for joining us today, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank, 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 